to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullock. And as always, we like to talk about things related to resiliency, crisis, emergency management, business continuity, and anything that can be related to those subjects. If there's a topic you'd like us to uh, speak about on the show or you'd like to be a guest, please feel free. Go to the Voice, Voice America page for the show, and there is a button underneath the graphic. You can send me an email with uh, your questions or thoughts or feedback of any kind, and I do get all emails, and I will respond to you. I'd like to remind everyone that we'll be in Phoenix again this year, September 29th to October 2nd, I think the the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference is, Um, and we'll probably be doing another live broadcast. Uh, It was very successful last year, so uh, we're going to do it again this year. If uh, you want to come on the show and talk about a product or service, please get in touch. Um, We do have some advertising and sponsorships available. Um, I'd love to have you on the show to talk about what you do. Today's show is brought to us by Stone Road and their uh, online product, Boast Assessment. Uh, So uh, if you go to boastassessment.com, they have an application there that allows you to track your progress with your programs. You know, your resources has a risk component module, uh, all these different little pieces to help find out where your program stands. Now, for long term listeners, um, you will have actually heard my previous guest. He was on the show with a work colleague and they talked about organizational resilience. Today, I'm going to be speaking with one of those individuals, Dr. Mark Siegel, to talk about one of his books, Preventing and Managing Violence in Organizations. So I'd like to welcome back to the show, Dr. Mark Siegel. Mark, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me again. Glad to be here. Well, the last show was so great. I know you reached out uh, with some other topics, and I thought, hey, there's some uh, good information here. So uh, I'm glad to have you back. Uh, Just in case uh, somebody hasn't listened to the previous show, uh, can you give our listeners a little bit uh, of uh, a bio on yourself, or, you know, what, you're, what you've done, what you're doing kind of thing? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm Mark Siegel. I am the president and CEO of M. Siegel Associates, LLC, which is a consulting practice that focuses on risk, resilience, and security management. And I'm also the director of Global Security and Resilience Projects in the Homeland Security Graduate Program at San Diego State University. So a big emphasis of what I do is looking at how you conduct risk management, resilience, security, and supply chain management and integrate it into a single approach. So I, I focus on using a systems approach and have worked on developing standards to support that. I was uh, the chair of uh, committees that developed 13 uh, American national standards that covered everything from business continuity and security through risk management, through quality assurance of private security companies. 
so they could be in conformance with the standard law and human rights code. And I also chaired the ISO committee that did the international standard for uh, conducting security operations and respecting human rights. And I've uh, been involved in writing two books, one in collaboration with James Leffler on organizational resilience, and the book that we're speaking about today, The Managing Violence in Organizations, uh, was published in December of last year. So I'll uh, talk more about the book in a minute. Thank you. Oh, well, welcome to the show again. It's good to have you back. I do have uh, the Thank copy you. in my hand of uh, Preventing and Managing Violence in Organizations. Uh, why don't we just jump straight into it? What are the different forms of violence okay. that an organization can face? There are a lot of different forms of violence, and what I emphasize in the book is that you're looking at a comprehensive picture of the different types of violence that you might come across, not just the very rare but spectacular events. So, for example, a lot of organizations are involved in activities where they're affected by external threat actors who have criminal intent but are not directly connected to the organization. So organizations are susceptible to robbery, theft, assault, and things like that. And different types of occupations like taxi drivers, 7-Eleven operators, healthcare workers, cash and carry people are more susceptible to type 1 violence. Another type of violence are violent acts that happen to a person working for the organization by an external threat actor who they're providing a service. So here you have, you know, people who are like in healthcare and rehab and social welfare programs or customer service activities. A customer or client that they're dealing with could uh, conduct an act of violence against that person working for the organization. And then another type of violence is the violence that is committed by someone who has an association with the organization and commits that act of violence against coworkers, contractors, managers, or supervisors who are in the organization. And then there's type four uh, violent acts, which are committed um, by someone who is not employed by the organization, but who has a relationship with persons in the organization. So those first four types were taken from the OSHA classification of workplace violence. In the book, I talk about two additional types of violence. I have type five, which are violent acts that are committed by a threat actor who's acting on fundamental beliefs. So this can be someone who has a sense that they've been wrong or have an extreme belief system, and that brings into looking at active shooters, lone wolf terrorism, hate crimes, and other crimes that are related to political, ideological, or sociological aspects. And then finally, which is a very rare form but does happen in other countries and could potentially affect um, organizations within the United States are violent acts that are committed by multiple threat actors working as a tactical group. So this has occurred in some places in the form of terror attacks and in, in the form of certain hate crimes where you have more than one person working together. So 
with all these types of responsibilities, the book really focuses on the human aspect and, and that there is a need for people to engage and everybody to understand that observing and monitoring and dealing with these acts of violence is everybody in the organization's responsibility. And they should also be, you know, looking to prevent as well as need to know how to respond as well as what are the recovery options after an incident. So those are the basic six types of violence that are discussed in the book. So how, excuse me, so how does an organization address that? Because, you know, with six different types, should we just not look at it as a single threat, violence in general, or should we break it down into different little projects? You know, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? How do you go about dealing with that and putting something together? Well, first of all, it is to look at that there's a commonality between these different types of violence and that there's the need to have an overall program to manage them, to get away from what was a trend in the past of you'd have an active shooter event, it's spectacular, it's, it's splashed all over the news, everybody panics, and all the focus goes to active shooter, even though it's an incredibly rare incident, and mm-hmm. then people you know, stop thinking about, you know, let's use an example of a school that you have another type of violence of suicides and bullying that are much more prevalent in schools and also are competing for resources to deal with it. So the first step is really to look at all of these things are different manifestations of violence against the organization. And then each organization actually has to sit down and do its homework and think about what are the products and services and functions and activities and different stakeholders that are involved in the organization's business so the organization can then look at these different types of violence and think about, are we doing activities and conducting functions that could be impacted by one of these six different types of violence And then that feeds into a comprehensive risk assessment where you're going through and you're looking at what's the likelihood and consequence uh, of the different types of violence, how it will impact an organization's activities and functions, will it disrupt its ability to provide services and products, will it have a significant impact on the people who are working on behalf of that company. So you really are aligning what the types of violence are with what are your actual objectives and functions and activities. Uh, I guess that would be uh, something along the lines, you know, if you don't have a, uh, you know, a, a customer service area, you know, that don't deal face to face, well, then you don't need to worry when well, I won't say don't worry, but you're the risk of someone coming in and causing harm to that to a face-to-face situation would be reduced. But if you're, exactly. you, know, you do have someone, then it's an inc- a higher risk you know, of someone coming in and doing something because you've got people there, right? Exactly. And if you're, you know, you're providing a service or you're interacting with clients where, you know, the client is going to get upset either because they're not getting the service that they feel they desired or, you know, it's just not available to them. You know, a lot of times, People will suddenly get upset and will take it out on the employee 
who is giving them, you know, essentially the bad news that you're sorry that service is not available. So, you know, if you're not interfacing <clears throat> with the outside stakeholders in that way, then, you know, that's one area where you, you know, the likelihood and the consequences are essentially negligible. So it's like any risk ranking that then falls out of a major focus area. But, you know, on the, the other side of that, you know, if you're, it, working at a healthcare facility in an inner city hospital where there's high crime and you have overcrowding of the hospital, you really have to think about types one and type two of violence against people who are working for you because that's just the risk environment that you're working in and it lines up with the services you're providing. So how I'm I'm curious how do you go about doing the risk assessment that way cuz that's got to be a challenge to be able to talk to staff or management about this knowing that you know if you've got someone in reception they're much more um vulnerable shall, shall I say you know to someone walking in mm-hmm. than than someone who's you know, maybe on the fifth floor and back in a corner somewhere how do you broach that with with them you know how do you identify the risk well, it, <laughs> it, it's, actually, it's a time-consuming process. You first break it down for, you know, each type of, of uh, violence or risk that you're looking at, and then you really have to think about what are the stakeholders that can impact that risk and either to lessen it or to increase it, and then also what are the stakeholders that can be impacted by the risk. And you actually need, it's, you know, setting up a matrix, doing a listing, having a conversation. You have to go through all the different activities that the organization is doing and break it down. So it's a time-consuming process. Mm -hmm. And that comes back to a lot of this is supported by team building. You're not giving this as a sole activity to the chief security officer or the business continuity manager. You're setting up a team where people who are representing different activities and functions in the organization can provide their input and can give you, you know, firsthand knowledge that a problem exists. So, for example, a hospital that I worked at had um, a chief security officer who came out of a SWAT team and more or less would sit in his office and do security planning for the entire hospital. The catch was the chief security officer really was not aware of the way the nurses felt um, and the how they felt endangered going out to the parking lot between shifts to get in their cars. So without talking to the nurses, he developed a, a system that was using different cameras, doing alarms, and it didn't change the situation. The nurses still didn't feel comfortable. So it was then restructured where we did a team exercise and had a team looking at the risks and the team included not just the nurses but also the labor representative of the nurses and it changed the way 
we were protecting the nurses, but it also changed the nurses' attitudes that by mm-hmm. including them in the discussion of what they felt was making it difficult for them to do their job, we were able to come up with a security approach that made the nurses feel comfortable. They no longer felt nervous going out to their cars between shifts. And it actually, the metric we used to see if this was working was had nothing to do with the actual security. We used as the metric with the nurses being able to stay and do a clean handover of shift and the attitude of the nurses while they were in the doing their job, the quality of the service in terms of nursing that they were doing improved. And that was our metric. And that's, you know, that really came back to the hospital administration that this exercise, even though it was more cumbersome, more time-consuming, was worthwhile because at the end of the day, what the hospital's interested in is quality of care. And, you know, unfortunately, they're not as interested and they don't get as excited about you had less incidents of assault in the parking lot. So, it, you know, it worked out very well and we got management support for all the, the changes and they continued to support this idea of doing team exercises. Well, I guess it does come down to you've got to include everybody, you know, in your discussions because, from using your own example, nurses are have one uh, viewpoint because they they've got their feet on the ground, they're right in the trenches with everything, and someone sitting in an office isn't going to have that same viewpoint, you know. So you've got to include all your stakeholders, exactly. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, we've come to the end so of when our you first put segment. The teams, what you're really looking for is. Go ahead you know, a makeup of people who represent the different functions and activities of the organization because they can feed in to you the information of what's the real-world situation. But the other thing you're looking for, which is equally important in this team building, is different people have different perceptions of risk. Different people have different perceptions of other people. um, And they bring to the table when you bring this different group of people together that's ranging from, you know, maybe managers in the organization to the janitorial staff. By the way, always include the janitorial staff and the support staff like that. They are the eyes and ears of everything that goes on in an organization. And they have a wealth of information if you include them and make them feel comfortable sharing it. But they also, they're, you know, they're at different status levels within the organization. They have different personalities. They come from different backgrounds ethnically and religiously. So the better the mix you have, the different angles that someone can be looking at these different risks and providing input. And it also, because you're bringing in lots of different perspectives, can get you away from some of the tunnel vision that organizations have where you have one or two people doing this, you know, they have a specific bias from experiences they've had in the past and they might project that on the analysis and they're really not thinking about who are really the most likely people that could be either endangered or could be causing a problem. 
I agree. And on that, we're going to take our first break. I'm going to come back to you, uh, Mark, on that biases uh, uh, comment there. Uh, on our second segment, we're talking with Mark Siegel, uh, author of Preventing and Managing Violence in Organizations. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Dr. Mark Siegel, author of Preventing and Managing Violence in Organizations. Mark, in our first segment, um, you mentioned something that uh, caught my ear there, um, biases and uh, assumptions that you know people working in isolation. Can you explain that a little more, how um, uh, somebody's, uh, I guess, assumption or their personal biases can hinder some of this planning and get in the way? Yes. Um, well, the reality is, Everybody has biases because everybody's a product of the environment that they grew up in. And typically with people, you're more comfortable with what you're familiar with. So, you know, there's lots of areas of bias that you have to be aware of when you're, you're looking at violence in organizations because at the end of the day, you're looking at essentially your fellow workers to see if there's they're going to have a problem or they could cause a problem. So you have to be very careful. So, you know, some of the, the the more obvious ones that people think about is stereotyping and the assumptions you make about social, cultural, or gender biases. Um, 
can really change things. A really difficult bias that, again, if you have a bigger team, you can talk through it is you're going to have the bias of denial, and it can happen here. And, you know, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. violence can happen anywhere at any time. So, you know, you can't just say, I'm not worried, it it can happen here, and do nothing. I mean, you essentially have a moral and business obligation to take care of your people. Um, But then also think about it. When you start looking at information to think about what are the levels of risk, the other biases then begin to change the way you look at things. You have, you know, familiarity and confirmation biases where, you're actually just looking at things because they're more familiar to you or they've been on the TV more often or you have made an assumption and this data confirms your assumption. So it's adding a bias. Um, so you have to be really careful and you it's just helpful to go through and understand those things because, you know, when you're looking for for signs that something might be wrong and there's potential for workplace violence, if you don't understand your biases and you have somebody who came from a different culture or a different religion who dresses differently and acts differently and you're projecting that, oh, you're not familiar with them, so they might be a threat, that could be actually distracting you from somebody who's behavior is more related to oddities about them mentioning that they have this great gun collection and they like shooting animals or they, um, you know, just randomly shooting dogs and cats or they, they have, they, they're making threatening comments or they're making mm-hmm. hate-filled comments, but it's something that you're more familiar with so you don't take action or you don't think about that. So, again... You know, document these things. It helps. It helps you avoid pointing a finger at a person just because they're odd and not, you know, they're not really a threat. They just have quirks. And then assumptions, you know, I guess one way you can think about this is think about this. You're you're solving a very complex mathematical equation or, you know, any complex problem you're solving. Almost always, you make simplifying assumptions. So, again, the advice that I give in the book is when you're looking at these and you're discussing the risks and you're discussing how you're going to address these things, write down your assumptions. So when you finish your risk assessment, you can go through and you can look at, you know, were your assumptions done in a way that, it influenced the way you put your planning together or mm-hmm. influencing the way you're looking at the information. And again, it's not, you know, it's not an evil thing. It's just something that everybody makes these assumptions when they're simplifying a problem to do a solution. So it's really important to be aware of that. And then one final thing that I should mention that overlaps the assumption world and the bias world is really think about how the perception of time will impact your planning. Different people in different parts of the world, and you even see that, you know, in 
the United States. I grew up on the East Coast and live on the West Coast now. There's a different perception of time. And you need to understand that there's no bad concept of time. It's just different people have different ways of looking at it. So when you're starting your planning, clearly get a handle on what is the cultural aspect of time of the people who you look at as adversaries. Because remember, you have people who are adversaries who, you know, they don't need to strike while things are hot. They'll wait till things mm-hmm. cool down, and then they'll strike. And similarly, the way people are going to respond or address an issue will depend on their sense of urgency, which, again, changes from person to person. So it's one of those biases that is very important to understand when you do planning because you're hoping to drive a cultural change in the organization, and you have to time your change management to the ability of people within your organization to absorb that change. You you mentioned an interesting point there with the assumptions and biases, and I guess that links back to why you want to talk to all stakeholders, right? Because if you talk to everyone, that might help um, identify your biases or clarify your assumptions, right? Would it not by speaking with everybody? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing is, is it also gives you a sensitivity and awareness of the different spectrum of types of people and cultures that you're going to have to address when you do your planning on how you deal with an incident. So, again, it's back to that idea that it's a team effort and you're, you know, you're dealing Mm -hmm. with people, you have to listen to the people. So, with the concept of time, how long does it take to, you know, start seeing a change in thought, uh, you know, once you've done your risk assessment and, you know, um, you've got your plans, which I'll, we'll talk about um, a little bit later. But h- how long does it take, you know, to, to get a change, a noticeable change? It really depends on the culture of the people and the culture mm. of the organization. I mean, some places, mm. um, you know, that, you know, to stereotype here and do it and to show a bias is, you know, I, I get the impression a lot of times people who are entrepreneurial and high tech and younger are easier to to push a, a, a change with because they are mm-hmm. more flexible, whereas more conservative, older groups of people working in an organization who have done something the same way for a long time and it's worked well are going to be more reticent in changing the way they do things. So you really have to look at the individuals you're working with and time your change accordingly. And what I find has worked best for me in the past and companies that I've worked with is trying to understand that culture within the organization and then also trying to think about what is a problem that is looked at as this is a problem more or less enterprise-wide? It's keeping the management up at night. It's keeping the workers up at night. And I find it easier to do a lot of the development of this complex idea of risk assessments and management systems by focusing on an issue people want solved first and rolling out the pieces of and methods of how you 
address the problem on that, that issue. And then does, they see that they're investing their time in something they feel is worthwhile because they see both their interaction with it and they can see an immediate reward in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And to me, that drives a faster cultural mm-hmm. change because now people can learn the concept on something that concerns them. They see an immediate gratification from having gone through this process and hopefully made the problem go away or be a lot less. And that sensitizes them to go for additional changes. That leads me to another question. If, if you're addressing something that people are thinking about, is this something that's identified as a priority through the risk assessment, or is it something that they're just feeling because they've seen it in a headline? Which would you suggest is, should they really focus on if you really want to I suggest doing make it through the risk assessment. Um, okay. Yeah, I really strongly, you know, always try to get people go back to the risk assessment. I've been amazed at how many different com- companies, in, even in, in different countries that I've worked with, that when you go through and do a, a formal step-by-step risk assessment that is looking at the different issues, their priorities of what is a problem and what isn't a problem often can flip on its head. So I you know, strongly advise people to do the risk assessment because also think about it. If you're going after an issue that was incredibly rare but is incredibly spectacular, you know, the, the active shooter is, is an example of that. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the likelihood of an active shooter event, I, I've heard it like FBI presentations, is you're more likely to be struck by lightning twice in the same spot than actually be involved in a active shooter event. So if that's the problem you've solved and you've dumped all this time and all this money into that and it never happens, people are going to become complacent. People aren't going to listen to what, you know, what and why you're doing this. So that's why I would say use your risk assessment and pick out, you know, what really is for your organization, your activities, and your functions, the key problem that's keeping you up at night and focus on that first. And I guess, you know, headlines can change. And that really, I guess, if you're chasing after things that are, in a headline, you're really just having a knee-jerk reaction, right, rather than actually doing something of value. Exactly. And, and you know, it all gets down to, in the end, I, you know, I know a lot of people in risk management and security and continuity hate hearing this, but <laughs> at the end of the day, every organization has limited resources. And mm-hmm. if you're just going to be dumping resources as a knee-jerk reaction against every spectacular thing that you see in the newspaper, you're not using your resources effectively. Right. I agree. So here's a question for you. Knowing that all of this, you know, all the things you've said so far, who is really in charge of this risk assessment, considering in today's uh, business continuity world and, you know, the, the topic that we spoke with before, organizational resiliency, when it comes to workplace violence, who really leads that? Because when you think of workplace, you think of the facility, the facilities team, you know, so at least I do. Uh, um, so I'm wondering who really should lead the risk assessment about this and, you know, how, how do you get the right person 
or people and skills in that role to lead this initiative? Well, this gets back to doing it, uh, to setting up a team. Usually, you know, somebody who's going to set up the team addressing workplace violence is going to either come out of human resources department or will be, you know, if there's an in-house security or business continuity person, it could be that person tagged with doing it. The key thing really is to the person who's tagged to lead it doesn't really necessarily need knowledge in, um, in security and in business continuity. But they need knowledge in how to walk through and facilitate a discussion around the risk assessment. And they also need to be somebody who can command the respect both of the people who are in the team and the people who are in management that they have to interface with the team. So looking, you know, around the people you have, um, if your chief security officer is not a good communicator and is not somebody who really understands the business model and understands the objectives of the organization, then, you know, perhaps it's better going with somebody who, you know, comes out of human resource management or quality mm-hmm. management that can lead the discussion and, and get this information. And, you know, sometimes there's the advantage of going to the human resource person because, you know, when you think about it, a lot of measures that you're going to be using in terms of preventing violence in the organization are going to be linked to the hiring and background checks and vetting and screening of your personnel. It's going to Mm -hmm. be dealing with different complaints that come in and, you know, Usually, if somebody says abusive things to another person, the first person notified is the human resource department. So, again, depending on how your organization is organized and the different personalities, um, the you know, best person to to tap for something like this is really probably the best person who can organize a team. Oh, good. Okay, so it's it's like the skill rather than, you know, just because you're the vice president of whatever department doesn't necessarily make the perfect fit to lead this initiative. It's the person with the skill and that everyone feels confident with to able uh, to move it forward, right? Yeah. And what's interesting is when you're looking at this, and this is, I think, something that is changing now when people are hiring people for positions, a lot of the the skills that I'm talking about are actually, you know, what people refer to as the soft skills in -hmm. terms of being able to communicate with people, being able to empathize with people, being, you know, able to listen and be a good listener with other people. So, you know, it's really, you know, good to look at what are those soft skills. The fact that somebody has been in the military or has been in the police really doesn't necessarily mean they'd be good for this tour, for this kind of tour. Um, you know, the activities that they were involved in really are less involved in the people to people activities, you know, in, in a general sense than 
you know, somebody who came out of human resources or somebody who, you know, has a background in psychology. Mm -hmm. On that, we have come to the end of our second segment. We're talking today with Dr. Mark Siegel, author of Preventing and Managing Violence in Organizations. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullock. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Dr. Mark Siegel, author of Preventing and Managing Violence in Organizations. Uh, Mark, you had uh, our last segment was a lot of great information on uh, who leads teams and how we go about them. I'm wondering now if we have something, how do we get our message, you know, our awareness out to other employees? You know, if we've got a large company and we're all over the place, how do we get our people trained to think? you know, uh, of this uh, on a regular basis, you know, and I'd be able to identify when there is potential for violence. You know, what what can we do with those things? Uh, first of all, it's it, you start integrating looking at the risks into all the training and all the activities. So when you start with the vetting process with new employees, Present the new employees with the policy that the organization has uh, about violence in the organization. So that first is sensitizing them that this is a key priority of the organization and begins to give them an awareness of the activity. What I like doing, and it 
sounds incredibly simplistic, but it seems to work, is that in the actual standard operating procedures of the organization, have a section that looks at who are the internal stakeholders that can either be impacted or can impact a specific procedure, who are the external stakeholders who can be impacted or impact a specific procedure, and then have what are the risks that are associated with that procedure and that group of people, and what are the measures that you have in place. So it's now ingrained in the actual procedure that every individual, regardless of what they're doing in the organization, every single activity and function they're doing, they're thinking about what are the implications that could be for violence. I mean, you use the same concept with any other type of risk issue. You can use it with, you know, cybersecurity. I, actually, there's somebody using the book as a text for a cybersecurity course. Um, and you look at, you know, the different types of risk, and you're getting people in the organization now aware that they are responsible for themselves and the people around them and that they need to be thinking about this all the time. They're beginning to think of managing security and violence and continuity and all these things, sort of like the operating system of a, a, of a computer. You work on your computer, you're doing a word processing document, you don't want to have to think about the operating system. But the operating system is invisibly always working in the background, and you have to have, you know, enough of knowledge when you're working with your word processor to do the basic functions that are uh, involved with it. So it's a similar thing here. And then the other thing is, is you communicate. You know, one of the key things that, you know, I talk about in the book and go over quite frequently is not just that this is teams, but it's you're, you're promoting the flow of information and communication back and forth. I've been amazed at how many organizations I've visited and they go, oh, yes, yes, we've seen the run, hide, fight video or we've seen the see something, say something signs. And then when I ask, okay, if you see something, who do you say it to? And they have no idea. So... Mm -hmm. It's building the communication mechanisms that go with the teams so people feel comfortable providing that information. And again, they look at it that they're part of this group, everybody has buy-in, and they're providing information that is essentially keeping them safe. And then other things that build the awareness are doing things like exercises and drills. So you learn how to do the activities that you're, you're doing. So, you know, muscle memory takes over when an event takes place and you're not sitting there trying to think about, oh, what do I do next? And then I try to encourage companies to do, like, little things that remind people all the time that this is important and that they need to take responsibility. So one of the things I tell people, again, extremely simplistic, but it seems to work well, is that, Tell your people when you walk to your workspace during the day 
like when you come in the morning or you leave in the afternoon, take a different route to your workspace. Because what that's doing is, first of all, it's reminding you that this is something you need to be aware about. But it's also reminding you in that run, hide, fight scenario, are you familiar Mm. with the different escape routes? Have you walked the escape routes recently, and are you aware if there's obstacles in the way of the of the escape routes and using the things? I mean, keep in mind in the in the school shooting in Florida, one of the problems was, you know, they had gone through the training, they had designated safe areas. Well, what a surprise! Safe areas are areas where there's empty space, so people began piling desks and obstacles and other things in the empty space. So by doing this little simple thing of keeping people aware by walking different ways to their workspace, you get people who will be able to be sensitized and will see that there might be obstacles in the route. There might be, you know, tables and chairs and things sitting in a place that is their hiding space. So... You're building this awareness by doing the exercises, by the communications, by really integrating it into all the procedures. Yeah, you touched on a couple of interesting points. The the point about the standard operating procedure and, and how you go about that, that reminded me very much of what you need to do when you're doing project management. You identify the risk with all your stakeholders. And the the comment with communication, you know, it being two way. When communication is only one way, it's monologue. When it's two ways, then it becomes dialogue. You know, and that's I think is what you were alluding yeah. to, right? Yeah. So I, I know we're right. well, only frankly, it, all this is at the end of the day is common sense, risk business, and project management, mm-hmm. and going back and using you know the basic principles of you know good management, which is good communication, good information flow, including people. So they feel they're part of, you know, the game and they're invested in this. So it, it's going back and, and really let's look at what is considered good risk management, good business management, good project management, and adopt these principles in dealing with violence in organizations, with security, with business continuity, with crisis management, and all these other things. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing all these support functions of risk, security, resilience, business continuity, they're there to help an organization create value. They're there to have the organization achieve its objectives, to get its products and services out there, and to be an effective, functional organization. And that's why we're doing these things. So yep. the, the, the key is to keep that focus on what are the objectives and why are we doing this. And when people understand the why, then they do the job a lot better. We only have a couple of uh, minutes left, so, but could you give us some examples of things we should look for, um, you know, for those of us that are sitting in a, a cubicle somewhere or in an office, things that we should keep our eyes open for to help us identify you know, potential uh, violence uh, occurrences, you know, so that we can, you know, uh, see triggers ahead of time and know that, hey, that's a possible trigger, you know, and be able to report things, you know, proactively rather than doing something after it's occurred. Well, probably the the biggest thing to watch for, and 
this gets back to caring about your fellow workers is, you know, one of the, the big triggers that people point to a lot is, has an individual gone through some sort of life-changing experience, or is there evidence that the person is under serious stress? So is, are, are people that could be persons of concern recently had a death in the family, or they divorced, or they worried about job loss, or they having financial problems, are they ill? So that's usually you know, something that should perk you up. But then again, you think about it. Shouldn't you be concerned enough about people you work with, your neighbors, your fellow people at school, that if they are having serious stress issues like this, that, you know, you have a shoulder that they can come and lean on. Mm So, you know, that's one of the areas. You know, people who... You know, if you're a manager and you notice there's sudden changes in performance or a loss of interest of the person in their job, you know, that's something that you need to think about. Um, if someone started using medications or suddenly has stopped using medications, that's mm-hmm. also an area. Um, you know, if somebody is obsessing about violence and is talking about stockpiling guns and collecting things or, or fantasizing about doing harm to other people, those are signs. You just have to be mm-hmm. really careful with a lot of these types of indicators because they're very soft and squishy. And, yeah. you know, like one of the indicators that you know, people always come out with after a shooting event is, oh, that person loves to watch violent movies and loves to watch, play violent video games. Right. So, yes, there might be a connection, but 99.99 some percent of people who watch violent movies and TV shows and play violent video games never commit an act of violence. So... You have to be very careful of these indicators. I kind of encourage people, look for changes of behavior mm-hmm. rather than try to say, okay, there's one indicator. And then look for multiple indicators. Um, and I'm going to have to end there because we've only got 30 seconds left. So, so unfortunately, I know we could probably talk for quite a while yet uh, on this subject. So, um, Mark, I want to thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us. I thank you for having me. And to everybody out there, um, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.